Please be seated. And as you take your seats, you can open with me and your copy of the Word of God to Matthew 2 as we look at verses 1 through 12 on this we call Epiphany Sunday. The Epiphany of our Lord is a Christian feast observed on January 6th, the 12th day of Christmas, as some call it. Now, the word epiphany comes from a Greek word, a verb that means to shine upon, to manifest, or to make known. Thus, the Feast of Epiphany celebrates the many ways that Christ has made himself known to the world. We read about that to some degree in our New Testament reading in Ephesians chapter 3. The great mystery, as the Apostle Paul called it, was that Christ would come not simply for the Jews, but also for Gentiles, for all the peoples on the face of the planet, to bring about salvation. This was mysterious, certainly to a Jew. But Christ did come, and we see it beautifully in this story of the Magi as they come to worship And look for the baby Jesus. I want you to notice three things this morning before we enjoy uh, the Lord's table together. Number one, I want you to see in the Magi a sincere search for Christ. And we have that in verses 1 and 2. And then in the middle of this passage, verses 3 through 8, we have, secondly, a superficial interest in Christ, as evidenced by Herod and the chief priests and the scribes. And then finally, in verses 9 through 12, we have the satisfaction of finding. And we might even say finding and embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in the Magi in verses 9 through 12. So along with a synopsis of the message, join me in prayer. And let's ask God's blessing as we study his word together this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would be honored through the exposition of your powerful and errant word. And that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would move amongst this congregation in every single heart. That, Lord, you would work out your good, pleasing, and perfect will for every one of our lives. We'll give you the praise and glory for all that you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Magi, we see in verses 1 and 2, engage in a sincere search For the Lord Jesus Christ. Who were the Magi? Well, they were basically astronomers, or some say astrologers. They were wise men who would give advice to certain kings, and they were from the east, perhaps from Babylon or Persia. And so they came a very, very large distance in order to find and worship the Lord Jesus. I want you to notice a few things about their search for Christ. Number one, it was humble and honest. Humble and honest. How do we know it was humble? Well, have you ever heard of three men traveling together and asking for directions? (laughs) That's exactly what they did. They were not proud. They were looking for the baby Jesus. And so they naturally went to the sitting king, King Herod, and to ask for directions. They thought surely Herod would know where the baby Jesus is to be born. There was no pretense. They made clear who they were seeking. And so they were humble and honest, but also bold and fearless, secondly. They dared to ask a sitting king where the king of the Jews was. There's something very artless and extremely honest, but also bold and fierce, fearless in this attitude 
They made it clear that the one they sought was no ordinary earthly king. They said, he is a supernatural king in so many words, for we saw his star in the east. They assigned deity to the king that they were seeking. How? By saying, we have come to worship him. Herod would have been very, very turned off by these words. After all, he was the king. He was the one that others should bow the knee to. And to hear about another king, the king of Israel, and a king not just like an earthly king like Herod, but a supernatural king, that would be very upsetting. And so their search was humble and honest and bold and fearless, but also earnest and intense. Magi, as I've already mentioned, meant a wise man, a cast of astrologers, most likely from Persia or South Arabia or even Mesopotamia. And these men had traveled a great distance in their search for Jesus. They were hungry. They were drawn to seek Christ by the soul's hunger. Now remember, they haven't seen any miracles that Jesus would perform. They've never heard a sermon out of the mouth of the Lord. And yet, there is an earnest, intense searching, seeking after the Lord Jesus. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about seeking. Seeking God, seeking his face. We read in John 4, 23, that not only is man commanded to seek after God, but God seeks after men. Jesus said when he talked to the woman at the well, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Psalm 27, 8. When thou didst say, seek my face, my heart said to thee, thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. Psalm 34.10, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. I love the words of Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, thou art my God, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Isaiah, the prophet, said in 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. Hosea, I will go away and return to my place, says the Lord, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. Even the Lord Jesus himself in Luke chapter 9 said, And I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And the Bible says, even after we become believers, we're to keep on seeking. It's a perpetual thing. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 14, said, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. You see, seeking is a very important part of the Christian life. 
And a man or a woman whose heart has been touched by the grace and the mercy of God can't help but seek. You see, these wise men are searching for something that is far beyond them. They're not Jews. They're certainly not close to Jerusalem. They're Gentile men. They're far away. And yet the Lord Jesus has sought them. And that's why they seek after him. Because of God's mercy and God's grace. Let me ask you a question as we begin 2024. What are you searching for in the new year? What are you searching for? What are you longing for? When I read the news, I often see people searching and longing for financial security or a sense of identity or acceptance or success in my studies or in my professional life. But you know, something that we see in these wise men is that The one thing that God has called us to search for is himself and his kingdom. That's why Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. All those things that we spend our lives worried about and concerned about. The Lord Jesus himself said, Seek the living God and his Righteousness, Because we don't have any righteousness ourselves. We're sinners. And God demands perfection. And that's why he sent his son, who was the infinite God-man, who lived a perfect life that we could never live, and then died a substitutionary death for us, so that our hearts would be touched, and we would seek his face and find salvation and continue to seek his face throughout life. What are you seeking after? You know, the theologian, Augustine, said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. The things that we search for and long for in life will never satisfy us like a personal relationship with God's Son, Jesus Christ. We could follow the example of these magi and seek after Christ. Well, and notice, secondly, a superficial interest in Christ. The tide turns here. These verses represent a reaction of Herod and the many others of Israel, many other citizens, particularly the chief priests and the scribes. And for these, news of the birth of the Lord Jesus was uh, three things I want you to notice. Number one, it was troublesome. Look at verse 3. And when Herod and the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, news of the Messiah's birth should have been encouraging, not troubling. I mean, after all, these men are Jews. They know the scriptures, they read. They've been brought up in the tradition. So why is it troubling? Well, because Jesus is a threat to all other kings and kingdoms in the world and in our lives. Christ came to change us, to cleanse us of sin, and to make us new creatures in him. And that can be really disturbing. I mean, Herod and many of his subjects were satisfied with the status quo. Those who are humble and know they are sinners welcome the Messiah with open arms and excitement. But to those who are proud and those who are self-sufficient and those who are self-righteous, the birth of Jesus presents nothing but a threat. A threat to my agenda, a threat to my sense of control, 
a threat to my plans. Because we're talking about the living God becoming man and coming to earth to set the wrongs right and to give his life for the redemption of your soul. That changes everything. But for those who don't see their need, the coming of Jesus Christ is really an interference to life. It's troublesome. There is no sense of joy or excitement or welcome. Well, it's also merely academic and theoretical for the chief priest and the scribes. Look at verses 4 through 6. Gathering together the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began, that is Herod, to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the people, by the prophet, You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The chief priests and the scribes, these were men who were well acquainted with the scriptures. They know there is a Christ, and they know where he will be born. But their knowledge is purely academic and theoretical. See, these men bow the knee to Herod. They're not going to bow the knee to somebody else. They're not looking for another king. And it's frightening to see how men who can be so familiar with spiritual matters and well-versed in the scriptures and yet have no hunger or desire for a savior. What a great contrast between these men, these conscientious Jews, and a bunch of Gentile astronomers and astrologers. One camp, their hearts have been touched by God's grace. The Lord has sought them out, and now they humbly seek him. The others, although they have book knowledge, although they know the scriptures, nothing has happened. You see, these men should have been leading others to find Jesus. These men should have been anxiously awaiting the Magi to come, having been so well-versed in the Scripture, and to lead them on to follow the star. Sadly, their lack of spiritual hunger and thirst leads them to do nothing. They have the information. It's a reminder of John chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But to any who received him, he gave the gift of eternal life. See, these verses show that for religious leaders, the scriptures were mind-informing, but they were not heart-changing. The reality of Christ was not something that was driving their lives. They had answers about the Lord Jesus, but no hunger to know him. And that's a sad state of affairs, ladies and gentlemen. To treat Christ as if he's just like any other dead historical figure. No, he's not. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he lived and he died and he rose again. And he is alive now and he's coming back for his church. So whenever we understand that, we cannot read about Christ and sit idly. James 1, 21-22 says, Receive with humility the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. I'm reminded of Paul's words in the New Testament, always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's a sad reality. See, this presents a warning to us when we look at these men. 
Sacred scripture will help us or it will harden us. It will help us or it will harden us. It will help us to find the Lord and to keep on seeking his face. Or it will harden us. And we will hear and listen and even be educated but do nothing in response to his word. Well, one other thing. News of the birth of Jesus was troublesome. It was merely academic and theoretical. And then it was something to oppose and eliminate. Look at verses 7 and 8. Herod tells the Magi to go and search for the child under the pretense that he, Herod, wants to come and worship him. And we know this is not the case because of what Herod does later, as he has all the male children under two years of age slaughtered. This is why he seeks, in verse 7, to ascertain the time that the star appeared. He wants to know how long ago it was so he can measure the age, the approximate age of the baby. Herod, this is a man who totally consumed with himself. He couldn't bear the threat of his autonomy and control being shaken. Nevertheless, when I think about Herod, I think about myself, and I'm not so different. We're all not so different than Herod. The basic sinful nature of all human beings says to the Lord, not thy will be done, but my will be done. And until a holy and a sovereign God changes our hearts, we'll continue with that kind of thinking and that kind of living. And that's the way Herod was. Herod was looking out for number one. Herod was all about himself, but he gave the pretense that he wanted to come and worship. It was nothing but a lie. As you see, the birth of Jesus was something to oppose and to eliminate out of his life. And that's the way a lot of people even today treat Jesus. They oppose him, they stop their ears from hearing about him, and they want him out of their life. What is your posture toward the Lord Jesus? This is a warning to us. You can't go through life with a superficial interest in Christ. There has got to be something more substantial. That when we hear his word, we truly believe it. We truly believe that he died in our place. We truly believe that he is our Lord and Savior. We're hungry for the scriptures. We get up in the morning and we want to read the word of God. We want to pray. We want this relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the most important thing for our lives every day. Well, we have a sincere search for Christ, a superficial interest in Christ. But notice, thirdly and finally, the satisfaction of finding Christ in verses 9 through 12. We can see the satisfaction of these magi in four different ways. Number one, their joy. Look at verses 9 and 10. They have a deep sense of satisfaction and contentment in the soul. The text says in verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Jesus was to them the treasure hidden in a field. Christ was to them a pearl at great price. You see, they recognized the wealth of having a personal relationship with this baby Jesus. It's what Paul called in Colossians 2, 
2 and 3, the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul said, if you've got Jesus and faith in him, you've got everything. And he is the one and only who can bring a true sense of joy, deep down contentment and satisfaction to your soul. Well, they expressed their joy, but also their worship. Look at verse 11 and 8. And they came into the house, and they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. The Lord Jesus is clearly a priceless treasure to them. He is the most important reality in life. It takes place in a house. You'll notice here, this is true worship. There's no organ, no piano, no music of any kind. The presence of the living Christ is all that is necessary for the true worship of the triune God. I see so many Christians that go to church and then they rate the experience from 1 to 10, you know. Well, the uh, anthem was not what I expected it to be and the sermon was boring and nobody said hello to me. Have you ever heard that? I hear that all the time. And I wonder sometimes what should be said. It should be said that I've been in the presence of God today. I went to seek the Lord Jesus and worship him. He who is the lover of my soul. He who paid the penalty for my sins. And all that mattered, the most important thing, that my heart was right in seeking his face. We experience the same as the Holy Spirit mediates the presence of the living Christ every time we gather for worship, especially whenever we enjoy Holy Communion together. But you see, it's not a matter of the accoutrements of worship and what takes place. It's a matter of the heart. The Father seeks those who worship in spirit and in truth without pretense. And there's always a blessing waiting for that kind of worshiper. Paul says in Ephesians 3.12, In him, that is in Jesus, through faith in his name, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Jesus is our king, but also our mediator and friend. And so there's joy and there's worship in embracing and seeing the Christ. There's also giving. Look at verse 11b. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The giving was not casual or haphazard. They have gold and incense or frankincense and myrrh. Gold associated with royalty. Jesus was the king, the king of all kings. Frankincense associated with deity. It's used in worship throughout the Old and the New Testaments. And myrrh associated with his humanity. It's an ancient perfume. It made life more pleasant and death less repulsive because it was an ointment to be placed on the body at the time of death. And so these men, without even knowing it perhaps, acknowledged Jesus' royalty, deity, and humanity. You see, this entire passage demonstrates the grace of God. These men coming from the Far East, they have no knowledge. They ask for directions. And yet you see the grace of God and the knowledge of Christ throughout everything they do. Not as a result of their efforts, but because a holy and a sovereign God has chosen to bless them and show his mercy upon their lives so that they know who to go to and what to do when they get there. 
They gave what Christ did not need, but also in an earthly sense, what they could easily use and enjoy themselves. As if saying, I give all that I have because I'm filled with the joy and satisfaction of the Savior of my life. What else can I do? They gave the very best they had to the one who would give everything for them. You see, the bare act of giving by the Magi points to the ultimate gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Ultimately, the greatest gift you can give to God is yourself, your heart. I love Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8.5, the generosity of the Macedonian churches. Paul says before they gave any monetary gifts, they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us in keeping with the will of God. You see, when you give your heart to Christ Jesus, giving monetary things isn't so difficult. Because you realize the most important thing has been done for you and given to you by God's grace, eternal life. Well, there's joy and there's worship, there's giving, but also following. The leading of the Lord and the Magi's willingness to follow his lead becomes stronger and stronger in this passage. In verse 9, they saw a star that went before them and they stood over the place where the star stopped. And here now, God gives them in a dream. He speaks to them and reveals himself to them, saying, go home by another route so you can bypass Herod. I love that. You know, there's nothing better in life than experiencing the joy of Christ, worshiping him from the heart, giving him all that you have and all that you are, and following his lead day by day, being sensitive to his will. There's nothing more blessed than all of that. And we see that in these foreigners as the Lord God reveals himself to them. Two applications in closing. This passage is an example of the unlimited reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The unlimited reach. These men were far away culturally. They were far away geographically. But the Bible makes clear that no matter how far away you are, geographically, culturally, morally, it doesn't matter. Because the grace of God extends as far as the curse is found, as the hymn says. And whoever you are and whatever you have in your past, you're not too far away from Christ if you submit your life to him. And you're willing to receive his forgiveness and the free gift of eternal life. A second example. This is an example of authentic saving faith. Once again, these men had no knowledge of Jesus' teaching. They had never seen Jesus perform a miracle. All that they knew by the sovereign grace of God is that this baby, in this baby was the redemption that God had planned for the whole world. And only the Holy Spirit could reveal that to them. And so they bowed and they worshiped without evidence because they had true saving faith. There's nothing wrong with evidence. There's nothing wrong with things that speak to our minds and our hearts 
But ultimately, the Spirit of God has got to open our hearts and open our eyes so that we can look at the baby Jesus and say, this one is the most important one in all of life. He's the God-man, and he is not just simply Lord and Savior, but my Lord and my Savior, personally. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this Epiphany Sunday and for the revealing and the continuous revealing of your gospel of grace to those as far as the curse is found. Lord, may we all embrace that grace today and the mercy that you've shown us in Jesus. And may we find forgiveness, some of us for the first time and others afresh and anew, and the restoration of our lives because of the treasure of our soul in the baby Jesus. Lord, bless us to that end now as we commune with you. We make our prayer in Christ's name.